You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about three pirate ships in the Indian Ocean near Madagascar. These were the last of the pirates of the round, for now anyway. We talked about the Pelican, out of Providence, Rhode Island. That was the ship of a Captain Robert Colley, with Nathaniel North, George Booth, Samuel Inless, and a handful of other pirates on board. We also talked about John Bowen and Thomas White, two men who were captured by French pirates who then shipwrecked on Madagascar. Eventually, they were rescued by a pirate named Captain Reed, at which point Bowen and White joined up with the pirates. While they careened their ship, Captain Reed died, and Captain James took command, and here I'm assuming Captain James to be John James, the uh, decidedly ugly pirate with a golden toothpick. Just a few days later, that ship set sail and encountered another vessel flying Dutch colors. Captain James hailed the ship, asking, Whence are you come? The stranger answered, From the sea. It turned out to be a ship under Captain George Booth, now, last time we saw George Booth, he was a gunner on board the Pelican in about 1696. So today, we're going to follow George Booth to find out what happened between 1696 and 1701. This is episode 327. Hurrah! Under Captain Robert Colley, the Pelican arrived in the region in 1697. They sailed against the Moors, the Mughal and Ottomans in the region, and they did so in concert with Dirk Chivers and Robert Culliford, 
but they weren't at St. Mary's when Captain Kidd arrived in 1698. Culliford was there, but not these pirates, not the Pelican. They were cruising southeast of Madagascar at the time, hunting for French prizes. On that cruise, Robert Colley might have died. Some sources will tell you that he caught a ride with Giles Shelley, that pirate-adjacent merchant who carried so many men back to America. There's one tale that has Captain Colley back in Rhode Island working with Thomas Paine to build a church. And Thomas Paine did build that church, which would have put Robert Colley in Rhode Island at the same time that William Kidd came calling to talk with Thomas Paine. Either way, though, whether he was dead or retired, Colley was out. So the crew of Pelican elected the Cooper, Joseph Wheeler, as their new captain. But then, shortly after arriving back at St. Mary's, Thomas Warren arrives carrying the Act of Grace. Dirk Chivers and Robert Culliford both accept the pardon and leave with Commodore Warren, but several others, including Captain Joseph Wheeler, accept the pardon as well. So, once again, the Pelican is out a captain. The former boatswain, Samuel Inless, was elected captain of the Pelican. Nathaniel North, who we discussed at some length back in episode 318, he was elected quartermaster. But here, the records get pretty scarce. I don't know what happened to Samuel Endless. He just disappears from the story. Maybe he settled down with a nice Malagasy girl, we can all hope. But either way, they needed a new captain. So the Pirates of Pelican elected Nathaniel North. As for George Booth, he hadn't been on board Pelican in some time. A few months back, the Pirates had captured a relatively small craft called the Dolphin. George Booth was elected captain of the Dolphin. Now, as I said earlier, that was a pretty quick and dirty history of three, four years of active piracy. Piracy that involves names we know. And we mentioned some of these pirates when we were talking about Robert Culliford, but really, there's just not a whole lot of information about George Booth or the men of Pelican during this period. And for that, I blame Captain Kidd, or rather, I blame the Admiralty caring too much about Captain Kidd. They were obsessed with him for a good couple of years, and while all of this arguably more interesting stuff was happening, they don't have anything about it, almost at least. And since Adam Baldridge isn't around, and we don't have his excellent records to fall back on, there's very little hard data to talk about what was happening. Instead, what we have comes after this period and is of questionable truth. For example, of questionable truth is the tale of how George Booth got his new, much better, ship. This new ship was a French vessel out of Martinique. The captain, a man named Forget, was carrying liqueurs to Reunion Island. From there, he planned to trade the pirates for slaves. Now, that wasn't going to happen. As we know, the slave market dried up after the Royal Africa Company was demonopolized. The English knew that, but the French, or at least these French, didn't. 
they hadn't yet heard the news. So Forget sent his messengers to the pirates at St. Mary's Island and asked if anyone would trade him slaves for liqueur. The pirate who answered his call was George Booth. They met just off the coast of St. Mary's, and Forget watched a boat of about ten men approach his vessel. These were the men with whom he would trade for slaves. The ten men began to climb aboard, and according to Captain Johnson, quote, Captain Forget was upon his guard and searched every man as he came over the side. A pair of pocket pistols were found upon a Dutchman, the first entered, that is, the first to come aboard. The captain told him he was a rogue and had a design upon his ship. The pirates pretended to be so angry with this fellow's offering to come on board with arms that they threatened to knock him on the head and toss him roughly back into the boat. End quote. So the pirates were furious with this man trying to come on board with two pistols, but as the rest of the men were searched, the French found four more pistols. However, all of their guns were confiscated, and though it was clear that they may have had some nefarious intentions, the French were secure that they had overwhelming numbers and arms, so they let these men come aboard. Captain Forget invited the pirate Captain to dine with him, but he didn't actually know who the captain was. Instead, a man named Johnson posed as the captain and went along to dinner with Forget. They were accompanied by the first mate named Isaac, but the rest of the men, including Captain Booth, went to dine with the petty officers. At one point, Captain Booth excused himself to answer the call of nature. He left the cabin and was immediately followed by half a dozen of the petty officers. They were all armed and all clearly guarding this man who they did not trust one bit. Again, as Johnson writes, quote, Pretending to make water over the side of the gunwale, Booth laid his hand on the arning, and, being a nimble fellow, at one spring threw himself upon it, drew the arms to him, fired the pistol forward among the men, one of whom he wounded, and gave the signal. He's saying there that Booth was standing at the rail, pretending to take a leak, and then he grabbed the rail, threw himself over, grabbed the gun of the man closest to him, fired, hit one of the men guarding them, and then shouted out the watchword, the signal, that it was time for the pirates to move. The watchword was, Hurrah! And at this, all of the pirates that were below decks with the petty officers burst from the cabin. The men in the cabin had already been subdued, and the pirates were armed with hand spikes and axes. They struck all of the guards standing around with guns and picked up their firearms. Now, in the captain's cabin, Forget immediately knew that the pirates were making a move, so he stabbed Captain Johnson. But he did so with a silver fork, the only weapon he had to hand, and Johnson wasn't badly hurt. But then Forget drew his own pistol, aimed it squarely at Isaac's chest, and pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. It didn't fire. So Isaac struck him and took the captain captive. For the rest of the evening, though, the pirates behaved relatively well. 
all things considered. They decided that they would give their old, smaller craft over to the French crew. They weren't going to leave them stranded in the Indian Ocean, but they even allowed these men to take over some of their personal belongings. The French were allowed to bring their papers and books and journals. They had, you know, combs, a couple of mirrors, that kind of thing. They were allowed to take essentially anything except the money and the cargo. But the pirates didn't even take all the cargo. They left Captain Forget four casks of wine which would probably be enough for him to return to Reunion Island, sell, and buy supplies for the voyage home. Which, you know, was pretty decent as far as pirates go. So the pirates transferred all of their guns and, you know, their own personal effects over to Forget's ship, a, a far superior vessel to what they had been sailing. And it was just a few days later that in their fine new vessel, these pirates would meet up with the Alexander. So to recap, that leaves us with three well-armed, well-manned pirate ships in the region. There was that Persian grab under Captain James with Thomas Howard, John Bowen, and Thomas White on board. There was the Pelican under Captain Nathaniel North, and then there was this French ship under George Booth. These pirates were poised to become a real menace in the region, but first, they needed a proper pirate ship. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history, Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune in to Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. Before we move on to even more swashbuckling piracy and high seas adventure, let's talk about something equally exciting. The London Stock Exchange. The first London Stock Exchange was established by Queen Elizabeth back in 1571. This went hand in hand with the rise of all of those joint stock companies like the East India Company or the Virginia Company. It was shares in these companies that were being traded at the exchange. Well, actually, 
not really. The shares weren't being traded at the exchange, oddly enough. That was the intention, but that's not how it worked out. See, shareholders were permitted in the exchange. It was a high-class environment. But stockbrokers were barred from the premises. You know, the people actually doing the exchanging weren't allowed in the exchange. They were considered too low-class and too uh, boorish. So, barred from the exchange, the brokers set up shop in a nearby coffee house. There, over coffee and cigars, the brokers traded stock. But then, in 1665, during the Great Fire of London, that whole area burned down, including the original exchange and their coffee houses. In 1669, the new exchange was unveiled, and it was quite the upgrade. It was a very large complex in the very center of London, and at the center of the exchange was this huge clock tower. Now, I'm not exactly sure about this, but this clock tower may have been the largest clock in London prior to Big Ben. From that tower, the main hall of the exchange extended to either side, and then there were two very large wings that wrapped around a courtyard. That courtyard was home to an open-air market that ran during all of the open trading hours. Mostly it was higher-end stuff. You know, fancy fabric, spices, dyes, exotic fruit, tobacco, coffee, that kind of thing. And there were some less expensive goods available, but that was the minority. Now, this marketplace was nice. You know, it made all of these goods available to the people of London. But that's not really why it was there. These shops served as a kind of a weather vane. You know, a a metric for how much certain goods were worth on a given day. If the merchants were selling, say, pineapples at a certain price point, the brokers would make investment decisions based on that information. You know, like, Johnson, how's Calico doing today? Oh, well, let's sell everything we have in the East India Company, that kind of thing. Naturally, though, these merchants were all unflappingly honest. Not once did a single one of them ever consider taking a bribe to sell goods at a certain price point, a price point that would manipulate the brokers and the stock exchange, because, you know, that would be illegal. No, they never did that. But that's the exchange. Just keep in mind, it's a large complex filled with anyone and everyone of any influence in London. For now, let's turn our eyes back to that meeting between the Persian grab of Captain James... John Bowen and Thomas White, and the French prize of George Booth. The two ships decided to sail in concert, and made for the mouth of the Methelage River. Now, today there is no body of water named the Methelage River in Madagascar, but it seems likely that this was actually the Mahajamba River. The Mahajamba was a fairly major waterway, but even more important was the city that lay at the mouth. The city was also called Mahajamba, but it was the capital of the Bayani kingdom, later called the Bonia kingdom. Now, the Bayani people had been friendly to the English since at least 1693. That's when Thomas II visited the area and established relations with the Bayani. 
You may remember, way back when Captain Two first set sail, we introduced the queen of the Bayani people, named Antarvaratra Rahina. We also introduced her son, who actually hadn't been born yet, named Ratsimihalo. Ratsimihalo's father was a white man, probably English, probably a pirate, named Thomas. There are a few possible identities for who this Thomas actually was. A few have suggested it was Thomas too. Now that's not the case. Some, though, have suggested a man named Thomas Collins. Collins sailed on board the Charming Mary, alongside Henry Avery's fancy, and I'm pretty sure he's Ratsimihalo's father, but we'll get back to Tom Collins, because some would suggest that the father was Thomas White. Of course, we know that Thomas White is currently on board the Persian Grab under Captain John James which is just now, in 1701, arriving at the Bayani Kingdom. These two ships collected wood and water and bought supplies from the locals with whom they had good relations. The pirates enjoyed some R&R as well, you know, good food, good drink, and pleasurable company. But as they prepared to leave, another ship arrived at the mouth of the river, and it was a big ship. 450 tons and 50 guns. She was flying the King's Jack, but the pirates weren't sure if she was a man-of-war or a merchantman. So they decided to send two boats over to introduce themselves, friendly-like. One of these boats belonged to George Booth. The other, though, came from the Persian Grab, and that was the boat of 12 oars that we mentioned last time, and... A 12-oar boat is nothing to scoff at. Your average ship's longboat carried six oars and maybe as many as 20 men. For comparison's sake, though, the smallest ships that the Vikings used in war were called the Carve. They had between 10 and 16 oars and could carry as many as 40 men. Now, this was not a Viking ship, but... Forty pirates was a threat to anyone out there. And this large newcomer clearly knew that this was a dangerous situation because as those two boats approached, she fired on them. She didn't hit the two boats, but it was a clear warning. So the two boats turned around and ran at top speed, which, you know, I can't blame them for that. This is a really large ship with lots of guns, and if she was immediately hostile... Best to get out of range. The smaller of those two ships, though, ran into a mangrove thicket. These are trees that grow out of the water of the bay. And the boat, when she ran into the thicket, pierced her hull on a stump. So she began taking on water and eventually sank. The men made it to shore, but the boat was lost. The larger of the two, though, that twelve-oared craft, she made it to the coast. She kind of ran aground, but that wasn't a problem for a ship's boat. They just threw down the anchor, got out of the boat, and waited for the tide to come in. So this 450-ton ship had been a man-of-war, under French colors originally, sent to the West Indies when war broke out. But remember how the Pelican had formerly been ordered to reinforce the Jamaican fleet? Well, they ignored the order, but a lot of other privateers didn't. 
When this French ship sailed too close to Jamaica, she found her well defended, and wound up being captured by English privateers. The ship was rechristened Speaker, and sent to the Red Sea on a slaving mission. Now, we don't know the name of Speaker's captain. A general history actually avoids naming him on purpose, but it calls him a hot, rash youth, and also a young, unexperienced man who was put in with a nurse. And when this hot, rash youth chased those two boats off, the captain was reported to have said, quote, How will my name ring on the exchange when it is known I have run two pirates aground? End quote. And I'm just picturing some snot-nosed, pimple-faced, peach-fuzz prep school kid with a rich daddy who's already dreaming about how the great men of the London Exchange will sing his praises. I mean, it's tough for me to imagine a character that's easier to hate. And, you know, that's bad enough, but he's about to make it even worse. See, right now, this captain controls the mouth of the bay. The pirates aren't going to escape if he just sits still. But that's not something he can do. Not a man who's so clearly enamored with the idea of glory. So the captain decided to move in for the kill. And this proved to be the worst decision he could make. The speaker sailed in close and fired upon the two pirate ships. And yeah, that might lose him the tactical advantage here, but no one's going to complain about firing on some pirates. But, as it's said in a general history of the pirates, quote, When the speaker came within shot, she fired several at the two vessels, and when she came to an anchor, several more into the country, which alarmed the Negroes. End quote. Apologies for the language there, but when they say that the ship shot into the country, they mean they fired into the city of Mahajamba, you know, the capital of the Bayani kingdom. It's unclear whether or not this was on purpose. See, there were pirates ashore, but it seems more likely that this was accidental. That they were firing at the pirates, but, you know, missed and fired into some homes or docks nearby. And that's a problem. The speaker was here specifically to trade with the Bayani. They were looking for slaves that had been captured by the Bayani people from mainland Africa, and shooting up the capital city just isn't a great introduction here. So the captain immediately ordered a ceasefire and sent a delegation ashore to treat with the king. Now this delegation wasn't going to meet with the queen, Antavarachra Rahina. She wasn't the queen anymore. By all accounts, Rahina had been a beloved and respected and powerful queen, but she only ruled while her husband lived. She only ruled while her husband, the king, was still alive, and in the intervening years he had died. I'm not going to try to pronounce the new king's name, but when he came to power, Rahina was removed from her position. However, she still had a ton of influence. She may not have been queen any longer, but she was still beloved and respected and powerful, and in part, this had to do with her concubine, a white man named Tom Collins. That's the same pirate who had sailed aboard Charming Mary alongside Henry Every. Now, I've seen Tom Hollins called a kind of a prime minister, but I'm not sure that's right. 
I think he was more of an ambassador of sorts, someone who was there to treat with the English, specifically all the English pirates, which he could do because he himself had been an English pirate. Since he greased the wheels of trade and facilitated the flow of a great deal of wealth, this made Collins a popular figure, and his wife, the former queen, remained in a position of power and influence. She was so powerful and popular, in fact, that when her son Ratsimihalo came of age, he would be the preferred candidate for king. And I'm assuming here that it was Tom Collins, but let's not ignore the fact that it's possible, technically, that Thomas White was Ratsimihalo's father. I mean, it would be difficult. He would have to, you know, jump ship while they were being fired at, swim to shore, seduce the queen, take her to bed, leave, swim back to the ship and climb back on board in, I don't know, about six hours, but technically that is possible. And I guess if I saw some crazy white man jump off a boat, swim across the bay, seduce the queen and go back, you know, I might find that worth talking about for a few years' time, but it was, you know, it was Tom Collins. And right now, the trade relationship between the people of the Bayani Kingdom and the people of the Speaker was in peril. You know, firing your guns into the city, not a great opening. So the captain of Speaker sent his purser ashore. He sent him with a crate loaded with gilded guns, including two blunderbusses that had been inlaid with gold. These were magnificent presents intended to apologize to the king. But on their way, the purser was intercepted by Tom Collins, the ambassador. He spoke with the English visitors and took those firearms off their hands. He said they would be a perfectly fine apology and that the king would accept it, no questions asked. However, there were some issues with those men down in the bay. Collins informed them that they were not pirates, but in fact other merchants, Englishmen, honorable men who would have to be apologized to as well. They had made a serious mistake in firing upon their boats, just, you know, being neighborly, and the captain of the speaker had tried to kill them. The purser was understanding. It's here that he apologizes for his captain and says that he's a hot, rash youth, not an experienced man who does, you know, dumb things like that sometimes. So the purser agreed to row out to the larger of the two merchant ships with Tom Collins. He met with the captain, a man named George Booth, who by all accounts was a fine and honorable fellow, and agreed that his ships appeared to be legitimate traders, not some sort of pirate ships, and the two men sat down to haggle over the official amends to be made. Eventually, the purser agreed to give these merchants a cache of gilded guns, similar to those given to the king. He would also have his carpenters make any repairs necessary to their ships and probably provide a replacement boat for the one that had been wrecked. The captain, George Booth, definitely not a pirate, graciously accepted the offer on behalf of himself and his fellow, Nathaniel North, the other captain. Booth sent a pair of his men over to the speaker with the purser to deliver the news to the young captain. The two men, to, you know, seal the deal, invited the good captain to a barbecue on the beach. And that's the word they use, a barbecue. 
When the captain and his officers arrived on the beach that evening, they found it dotted with roaring fires. Above every fire there was a roasting pig or a roasting cow. The meat had been seasoned with this succulent Malagasy seasoning that made the mouth water. There was fresh fruit and rice and punch, that is to say, fruit that had been blended with a very strong rum. There were men playing guitars, violins, and fiddles. And then there were the girls. Trays of roasted meat, sticky rice, and fruit were being carried by young and very beautiful women who were wearing almost no clothing. Other women, somehow wearing even less, were carrying drinks. And these girls were more than happy to give the Englishman a cup and sit in his lap while he finished drinking. For the officers of Speaker, it seemed like they had a very pleasant evening ahead of them. But before they could get any of that, the captain decided to finalize the apology. He presented Captains Booth and North with their gilded guns. A man named Thomas White was there as well, and he seemed to know his firearms. He found them very fine, but he suggested to the captains that they really should have a demonstration of their firepower. Not to be offensive, you understand, we just need to be sure that they actually fire, right? So, just a question, are these guns loaded? he asked. The captain of the speaker assured him that yes, they were primed and loaded, ready to go, why not give them a try? And at this point, Captain Booth, Captain North, turned their gilded blunderbusses on the captain of the speaker. It took a minute for the captain of the speaker to realize what was happening. After all, his hands were, uh, full. But then he saw what was going on. According to a general history of the pirates, quote, Captain Bowen told the captain of the speaker, whose name I won't mention, that he was his prisoner. The captain asked, upon what account? Bowen answered, they wanted a ship. His was a good one, and they were resolved to have her. End quote. These three men had taken those gilded guns, trained them on the captain, and informed him that they would be taking his ship. Please and thank you. The captain looked around, and he saw all around him that all of those beautiful Malagasy girls were getting up from the laps of his crew. But those girls were replaced by pirates with drawn guns and drawn steel. Without a single shot being fired, the captain had been captured, and his ship had been taken. As it turned out, for the poor captain, tales of his exploits would indeed be spoken in the halls of the London Exchange. They weren't singing his praises, though. Instead, men would cry out the song sung by his men. The song goes, quote, How our captain's name will ring on the exchange, when, it is heard, he frightened two pirates ashore and was taken by two boats. Next time, these Red Sea pirates will coalesce on the speaker, the largest and most powerful ship seen in these waters since the fancy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. 
The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight